I've titled this Minding Your Joy in the Christian Life because I think this summarizes a lot of what Paul says in the book of Philippians. That He talks a lot about finding joy, but he talks too about the importance of our worldview, of our thoughts, the way we can perceive life to be, the way we think about things as being so important and what our actions, um, what we do is so influenced by our thoughts. Um, so he talks about both of those. Um, the book was written to the church at Philippi, and as we look at just some this background of Philippians, it's actually really important to, to really get the gist of Paul's message. He went there on a second missionary journey. As uh, we, we look at this, um, you can see here, his, this is his first missionary journey. He went as far as Antioch in Asia Minor. Then on his second journey was the first time he went all the way over here to uh, Philippi, we see, amongst his other travels. Um, then on his third missionary trip, he went back there. And then Paul went to Rome. Okay? And that's where he's writing, and he was in, he's imprisoned there because he appealed to have his case go before the Roman authorities. So it's really important to realize that he's writing this letter from prison in Rome. Uh, when he went to Philippi the first time, he met Lydia. They, his pattern was to go on the Sabbath to the synagogue. Apparently there was no synagogue there, but they had heard of about a prayer meeting. So he went, and Lydia apparently was a, a devout Jew, and when she heard the message of Christ, she believed and began to follow Christ, and she and her family believed and were baptized uh, that day. Then he wasn't there long, it appears. It may have been less than just a few weeks. Um, that uh, Another time they were going to this meeting by the river where Lydia and these others met, there was a slave girl who was demon-possessed and because of that was able to predict people's fortunes, and she was a fortune teller. And uh, Paul cast the demon out of her, and her owners that were making lots of money by her fortune-telling were very upset, uh, aroused a crowd against him, and he and Titus were, it says, publicly and severely stripped and beaten and put in prison. But that's where uh, he met. Oh, and he, it's interesting. In Thessalonians, this is the way Paul recounts that story. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated uh, at Philippi. I think the NIV says uh, severely treated. Uh, no, it says outrageously treated. Because he, they were Roman, he was a Roman citizen, and yet he was publicly stripped and beaten um, by these, uh, the guards. He says, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare you the gospel in the midst of such conflict. So he's saying that to the Thessalonians. They went to Thessalonica after having endured this at, at Philippi. So if you think about this, this, as Paul thinks back to his trip there, there, it was a mixed bag because he also had the Philippian jailer. Then while they're in jail, there's an earthquake, he's released. The Philippian jailer wants to kill himself because his prisoners are going to get away and he's going to be executed because he didn't do his job right. Paul says, Paul and uh, Titus say, no, stop. They, they had, and interesting enough, what were they doing when the earthquake happened? They're singing praises to God after they've been severely beaten with rods in public. Uh, and God uses this to bring the, the Philippian jailer and his family to faith. Um, so as Paul looks back at that, wow, you have some 
the gospel spreading. You have Lydia being baptized and her whole family, the jailer and his whole family, uh, but yet also to be severely beaten with rods and to have been stripped publicly, the scriptures say. Um, that, that couldn't have been a very good memory. Yet in the midst of this, Paul, God did something powerful between him and the Philippians. Did something powerful in Paul's life that he looks back and he has, he's filled with gratitude as he thinks of the Philippians. So you, we, we kind of wonder, how can that be? Well, a church was started sometime after his second missionary journey there. Paul went back on his third missionary journey. We saw that he stopped in the, there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was Passover. And that's a seven-day holiday. For seven days, they would eat the unleavened bread and celebrate Passover. Uh, so it appears that he may have just been with them that second time, just for a week. So his amount of time with them was rather small, but God really did some amazing things. And Paul, one of the things he says that he's so appreciative of them is that they helped and partnered with him in his ministry. Okay, and we see that he, they prayed for him. It makes mention of that, and he asked them to continue to pray. Financially, they gave to him three different occasions, the scriptures show, uh, twice in Thessalonica and once when he was in Corinth, they sent a gift to meet his needs. So some of the time he made tents uh, to make his living, but at other times he um, relied on gifts from churches so that he could spend all of his time ministering. So it depended on the situation he was in. But they sent someone with a gift for him to meet his need. And so they partnered with him that way. And then also, relationally, they partnered. They sent Epaphroditus to him to take care of his needs. And in this case, it mentions in Philippians 4 that he took a gift to them again, meeting his financial needs. But also, they sent him to take care of him. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the situation in Rome was. We were talking about this with the youth um, recently and talking about Philippians that in China, when people get sent to prison, um, their meals are not provided for. So a family member has to bring them their meals every day. And if the prison that they go to is not near their home, many times one of their family members will physically relocate to that area, which is another problem because you've got to have a special card that allows you to live somewhere. So uh, for many in China, especially Christians that are in prison, uh, it's a big deal. It, it turns upside down their whole life. So that may have been part of what Epaphroditus was doing as well, providing his meals for him. But certainly went to encourage him and to take care of him financially. As far as the purpose of the book, we see one of the big things is Paul wants to thank them. He wants to encourage them. He encourages them about being joyful and about thinking rightly. And those two are really vitally tied. And I, I hope we'll all get that, that, yeah, the way I think about things, my worldview, my view of how things happen uh, has a big part in how much joy I have in my life. And then he briefly addresses some problems, and you'll see there's just a couple of verses on that. So it's not a big part of his letter. It's not uh, all about these problems there. It's mostly about thanking and encouraging him. All right, as the, the letter starts off, this is a typical letter this is a typical format that was used in those days. It's addressed to somebody, and then it starts with a, a greeting. But there's some really significant things here. First, as we look at 
with almost all of Paul's letter, he's always, it's Paul and somebody and somebody to somebody. And then later in the letter, at the end of the letter, is always, word, oh, thanks so-and-so, give my greetings to so-and-so. Oh, these people with me here, send their greetings to those people. Uh, Paul was not a lone ranger by any means. All of his letters are packed with people. And I believe that's a big part of where Paul's joy came from, was that he found joy through Christ in helping and being helped by, by people. And that's one of the things I want us to look in our lives today. How much of my life, how much joy do I find? Am I giving myself to others and allowing them to encourage and give themselves to me? I believe that's an important lesson that we learn from Paul's life. He was always surrounding himself with people, and his letters are filled with it. But as we continue to look at this, there, there's two identities that Paul talks about in this greeting. Um, you know, we have many identities as Christians where he talks about being servants of Christ, we're children of God, we're uh, laborers for God, um, many that were partners with God. Um, but here he highlights, too, this one of being a servant of Jesus Christ. And we talked about this uh, last time I preached. I mentioned that later in this book, and it's so cool how at the beginning, the points Paul brings up later in the book, you see them lived out. So what, it, what does it mean to be a servant of Jesus Christ? Sometimes we just think, oh, it's just a title. He could have said, I'm an apostle of Christ, but he said, I'm a servant of Christ. But later in the book, he talks about Timothy. And I talked last time I preached, I think, about how I, we named our son Teo, Spanish Timoteo, for Timothy our prayer being that he would be like Timothy in the Bible. Paul said about him, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So he says, there's nobody else like this Timothy. Everybody else, they seek their own interests. But he implies here, not Timothy. Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. He seeks Christ's interests. And like last time, I would challenge all of us. What about your life? How often are you, is your motivation to serve Christ? How often do you say, Lord, how can I serve you? If it's not often, let me encourage you. Begin to make that a new prayer of yours. God, my life is yours. I offer it to you. How can I serve you? How can I serve you? That's what Paul and Timothy, they were servants of Christ Jesus. Also, their identity was of saints. Now, this is a word... Often in the Catholic Church, we often think of that meaning. In the Catholic Church, I think to be, become a saint, you have to have three verified miracles and some other things, and then you become a saint, and people can wear you on a necklace and whatever. Um, but that, that was not the meaning in the Bible. The bi biblical meaning of saints is this word hagios, which means to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. And the idea is that you have the nature of God rather than the nature of the world. You're different from the world because you have a God-like nature. You're like Christ. 
and that makes you different from the world. So that's the word in Holy Spirit, um, or he was a holy man, set apart, different from the corrupt world, and so with it a sense of, of a, a moral, righteous life as well, but that we're to be different. And so when Paul writes to the saints in Philippi, how many people in the church was he writing to? All of them. He considered them all to be saints as they had chosen, made a decision to follow Christ and believed in him, trusting in him, that they were setting their lives apart for God to use. And so I want you to say that. Turn to somebody next to you and say, I am a saint. Go ahead, say it. Okay. That's the truth. I'm just telling you to say the truth here. All right. Maybe you'll feel better to say, I am a saint because of Christ. Say that. Okay. And that is the truth. We're, we're not set apart because of good works we do. We're set apart because of what Christ has done for us. Um. But that is our identity. That is one of our identities. We are servants of Christ, but we are saints. We're set apart. We're his holy people. That's who we are. And when we sin, we ask forgiveness, and we continue to be saints, holy and set apart because of Christ. He clothes us in his righteousness so that we can be saints. Make that part of your life. I don't think we're supposed to go around all the day long, oh, I'm such a wretched sinner. Well, sometimes it's, most of the time it's true. We are, we're sinners and we're wretched. But because of Jesus, we have a new identity. And we don't continue to live in that old identity. He's given us a new nature and he's made us wholly set apart people. Let's, let's live that for him. Let's make that our identity to be his servants and his saints. And I want to share, uh, I was sharing this just the other night. Uh, I came upon this story. Um, It was in the New York Times by a Christian journalist called Amy Sullivan. And she was talking about that uh, evangelicals' role in the recent election. And and I don't want to get political here, but I think this is a really good point. It's helpful to me in thinking about this. And she said that journalists and scholars have spent decades examining the influence of conservative religion on American politics, but we largely missed the impact conservative politics was having on evangelicals and on religion itself. What researchers recently discovered was that while one quarter, or 25% of Americans, consider themselves evangelical, less than half of that group actually holds traditional evangelical beliefs. For others, evangelical effectively functions as a label, unmoored from theological meaning. Well, this uh, journalist, Amy Sullivan, she followed a pastor who had done a documentary about uh, the gun control and some of his views on it and his belief that pro-life values are incompatible with an embrace of total unrestricted gun access, including assault rifles and whatever. So he was trying to show that 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 just didn't line up. So she went with him, and she found his documentary very compelling. But they went to North Dakota, and she was very surprised by the response of the audience. She said, as two dozen of us gathered after watching the documentary, I was astonished and troubled as a fellow evangelical 
by the visceral sense of fear that gripped these young adults. As a child in a Baptist church, I'd been taught to be vigilant about real threats to my faith. But these students in a town with a population of 1,200 people saw the idea of a home invasion or an, or an Islamic state attack that would require them to take a human life in order to save others as a certainty they would face, not a hypothetical. These fears are far removed from the reality of life in North Dakota, a state that saw a total of 21 homicides in 2015. Of those deaths, seven were caused by firearms, and only three were committed by someone unknown to the victim. Yet, these students around me asserted that in the world around us, there are terrorists, home invaders, drug cartels, carjackers, knockout gamers, rapers, haters, campus killers, airport killers, shopping mall killers. This worldview is familiar to anyone who has spent time watching the news broadcasts where everyday viewers are confronted with threats to their way of life. One of the most consistent messages of the Bible is the exhortation, do not be afraid. Before young evangelicals can read, we memorize verses reminding us to be strong and courageous and trust in the Lord. Fear, says the documentary, should not be a controlling element in the life of a Christian. That disconnect underscores the challenge that many pastors face in trying to shepherd congregants who are increasingly alienated from the traditional gospel teachings. A pastor has about 30 or 40 minutes each week to teach about Scripture, said one pastor and writer. He said, but my congregation has been exposed to secular news potentially three to four hours a day. So what this person was finding was that many evangelicals weren't living different lives, weren't set apart because they were getting 30 minutes of the Bible every week, but every day they were hearing three to four hours of the news and the news's worldview. And so even in North Dakota, where there's very few homicides or gun killings, they were afraid that in their life, that, that the, in that year, they needed to have a gun because they were likely to be attacked when the fact was that was far from reality, but they were allowing this message to get to them. And my point here is not gun control or anything. My point is, where are we getting our information? Where is, where is our worldview sourced? Is it by continually being in the Scriptures? And I thank God the Word of God is preached here and in our men's groups and in the home groups. We're focused on the Word, and that's vital because we have all these other sources telling us that uh, we do need to be so afraid, or they're giving us their point of view, and it's not always a biblical point of view. So I want to encourage, it, it struck me, I realized as I prayed about this, that I've been watching and listening to a lot of uh, late night uh, comedy hosts. When I was growing up, my mom and I used to always watch uh, Johnny Carson's monologue and then Jay Leno's monologue and then we'd go both go to bed after the monologue and so I continue to do that some and but I began to find wow it's very uh, a, a lot of mocking of of our president and um, and I began to realize wow I I have stopped praying the Bible tells us to pray for the kings and those in authorities 
so that we can live a, a quiet life. And I realized, wow, I haven't been, been praying that I've allowed um, these, influ- these influences of late night comedy to impact me to become jaded and, and just feel like, oh, there's no hope. And so I realized, oh, I need to change my I need to be different. I need to obey the scriptures and pray for our leaders. So I pray in your life, whatever it is, what, I'd encourage you to think, what are the sources? Where am I getting my way of thinking? Am I allowing, am I spending enough time in scripture and talking about it with others that that's how my worldview is formed? Or is the world more and more being allowed into my head? Paul, here in this book, was calling us to be set apart. As we look at this next uh, section, Philippians 3 to 11, um, it's a little bit easier. It's smaller this other way, but this is kind of a way of diagramming the structure of it, and uh, I I find this helpful. Um, So he says to them, um, okay, I'll read it first. I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Then after that, he goes on to pray for them, and he gives them their prayer. But I want to go back and just focus on this passage first. He starts it by saying, I thank my God. So as we look at this passage, especially uh, looking for the idea, where did Paul get his joy? Well, some would say, He had joy, and so he gave thanks to them. Um, Perhaps it's he thanked God for them, and because he was so grateful, he got joy from that. I think it's both, that he he was a grateful person. His life was filled with gratefulness to God for what God was doing, and so he gave thanks, and as he gave thanks, he found joy. So that's one place in our lives we can find more joy is by being more grateful, especially for our circumstances, which we'll see later he does, and for the people in our lives that we'll give thanks. And he said that in all of his prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So all of his prayers for the Philippians are filled with joy. So part of his joy is found in prayer, and it's probably uh, one of those uh, circular things again. He has joy, so he prays for them. He prays for them, and that gives him joy. But why does he have such joy in them? Well, it says because they partnered with him from the very beginning. Okay, they part, You partnered with me even from that really rocky beginning where Titus and I were stripped naked and beaten with rods, but yet you, many of you came to faith through Lydia and through the Philippian jailer who came to faith during that time. You were with us from the beginning. And then as he talks about partnership, where he talks, they gave financially several times when he was in need, okay? And they were partnering. The church was started. After Paul left, a church was formed. So Paul didn't do all the work there. They were also partnering in the gospel, uh, building God's kingdom. 
So that's part of his joy, is that they are co-workers, partnering together. And then he's joyful because he knows, I believe he's saying here, I know you're genuine believers. I saw it from your lifestyle that you started a church, you preached the gospel, even though you saw me and Titus get beaten, yet you were willing to be Christians, knowing that could happen to you as well. And so I'm confident that God's going to complete the work he's doing in you, that God's maturing you and making you more and more Christ-like, and I believe he's going to keep doing that till the day you die. And there again, there's his worldview coming out. His worldview says, as a believer, every believer, God is going to work in your life, making you more and more Christ-like until the day of Christ. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that sometimes things happen that, that uh, mess up God's plan? Oh, this has happened, and man, that is going to bring me down spiritually. Oh, my Christian life is, is headed for the pits now. Well, I don't know why God allowed that. No, Paul saw everything as in his life as from God and for his good, and he saw everything in the Philippians' life as from God and for their good, and that gave him joy. He knew that God was good and was going to work good even through difficult things because he'd seen that in them. Through that traumatic, it was a trauma, I think, that idea that he, they were stripped and beaten, but God, part of that was he bonded them together through trials. And we see that happen in church here. People go through difficult difficulties in their marriage, difficulties in their life, cancer, death of close family members and people rally together and that bonds us together and that's part of God's plan God alone is able miraculously to bring good out of the difficulties in our life he also has such joy because he has them in his heart he has the love of Christ God Christ has just given him that passion for these people that love of them and as we have and ask God, give, give me more of your compassion for people, Lord. We'll see our joy growing as well. Then he says, whether I'm in chains or defending the gospel, you all share in God's favor with me. Wait a minute. You share in God's favor with me when I'm in chains? That sounds totally illogical. How could his chains have been God's favor? Well, he doesn't completely explain it here. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But again, once again, he even sees his chains as God's grace is the word he uses later, and we'll come to that. And he ends by saying, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. So our question becomes, where do we find lasting joy in our lives? The answer is we found it where Paul found it, in people in partnering through Christ, in Christ, in ministry with people for the sake of God's kingdom. So much of Paul's joy was with other people, building God's kingdom, bringing glory to God. When I say building God's kingdom, that doesn't just mean planting churches, uh, going on a missionary journey like Paul. Uh, God's kingdom is built when we're faced with a decision to do it God's way or to do it my way, to do it God's way or to do it the way of the world. And somebody hurts us, instead of getting revenge, we, we say, no, I'm going to go talk to that person, try to reconcile our relationship. That's God's way. 
And that builds his kingdom. His kingdom is built through every action of obedience in our life. And that every action of obedience brings him glory. So that's where we find joy. That's where, where Paul found his joy through Christ, partnering with people in building God's kingdom. So his joy was in Christ and in people. Close your eyes for a minute if you would and ask yourself, where do I look for joy in my life? Is it through attaining success at my job or status or money through my work? Or am I finding it in Christ? Am I finding it in giving myself to people and allowing people to give of themselves to me and bring me encouragement and help when I'm struggling? The give and take of fellowship, interacting with each other. Where do you find, where are you looking for your joy? You can open your eyes. And the Bible tells us if you're looking anywhere other than Christ and through Christ, our relationships with people, with his kingdom, you're going to be disappointed. Every other thing will may give you some momentary satisfaction, but what we all desire is lasting satisfaction, the deep, significant joy. And that's to be found in Christ and in his people, doing his work among his people. So then because he has this bonded relationship with the Philippians, look how he, he prays for them. He says, and this is my prayer. And again, it's kind of structured how um, the, the meaning is ordered here. This is my prayer, that your love may abound. So that's his primary thing he prays for, is their love will abound. And I think we know that we're talking about love, the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. So I think it's this idea that their love for God and their love for others will abound in what? Well, will abound in knowledge and depth of insight, that they will have deeper and deeper insight about God's love and God's love for them and their love for God and then loving other people, that they'll have a greater understanding of that, of how to love other people and insight into that. And he says, as your, I pray for your love that it will grow, it'll abound. And as it abounds, what's going to happen? You'll be able to discern what is best. You'll be able to have guidance in your life to know what's the right thing to do and when to do it. You'll mature. You'll become more and more pure and blameless. And you'll have fruit of righteousness. Your life will show right actions. And then ultimately from all of that, as I pray your love increases, what it's going to bring from it? is glory to God. Your life as you follow him is going to bring glory to God. And so that's what he's praying, is their love will deepen because it will bring forth all of these things. And again, his prayer comes because God has given him a Christ-like love for these people. What are the things that uh, you pray for your children? Are they these? What are you praying for the people in your men's group, in your home group, when you pray for your friends and family? If you're not sure what to pray, this would be a great place to start. 
their love would grow and grow so that they can know, have guidance, mature in their faith, have right actions, right behavior that ultimately brings glory to God. Paul loved them so much that he wanted this to be in their lives. This reminds me, this idea of not only how Paul was bonded to the Philippians um, and loved them so much and found his joy in partnering with them. Uh, In 1989, I went to China for the first time for a year. And before that, I'd been in a, a church in Tacoma, Washington when I was in the Air Force there. And I had the pleasure of meeting a retired doctor he was uh, in his early 70s, and he had also been a missionary for much of his life. And he, I was telling him that I was hoping to go to China. He said, oh, I've always uh, wanted to go to China. He said, I've applied to three different mission agencies to go, but they wouldn't take me because last year I had quadruple bypass heart surgery, and nobody wants to risk me going <laughs> overseas. Well... As I went there and got settled, I was in, at a, teaching at a law school with uh, my uh, partner, another Christian from Long Island, and um, I invited Dr. Brownlee to come and spend some time with us. I knew our students would love him. I'd seen how the Chinese students respect age so much, and he's just one of the most delightful people I've ever met. He's just big storyteller, has an unending number of stories to tell, about, mostly about his exploits. He was in Korea in the 50s, way out in the boonies. He did surgery in a tent. He made a tent, and then he would drive his Jeep in. He'd put a table out, and then he'd remove the headlight from his Jeep and hang it over the operating table to do his operations by. He was the only doctor for uh, the nearest 100 miles, and they were the only foreigners, he and his wife and their four kids, for 100 miles, and they were, they were in that location for like eight years. Um, but... While he was out, we just had a wonderful time, but uh, like the second day we were there, we had a class, and one of my favorite classes was we'd do uh, an ESL called a closed passage, where you have words to a song, and certain words are left out, and the students have to listen and fill in the words. Well, my si- this was back before the internet, and so uh, my sister had given me a book of Vincent Van Gogh paintings, and so we did the song Starry, Starry Night by Don McLean. And I opened the book to some of these pictures that seemed to go along with the words. The song starts out, Starry, starry night, paint your palette blue and gray, look out on a summer's day. Then he says, sketch the trees and the daffodils, catch the breeze and the winter chills in colors on the snowy wintry night. Then he sings, starry, starry night, flaming flowers that brightly blaze. Swirling clouds and violet haze reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue. Colors changing hue, morning fields of amber grain. Weather faces lined in pain are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand. And as I had this book at the front of the classroom, as I read this, or as the song played the words of this second passage, Dr. Brownlee just began to weep out loud. <laughs> And he just and heaves, his shoulders were, he just couldn't control it. And it was, it was a very awkward moment um, for all the students and myself. I had no idea what was going on. And, and he kind of, he just raised his hand to me, just like, oh, hold it just a minute. And 
And so we, we, we stopped the song, and he gained his composure, and he, he said, and he went on to give this beautiful testimony, but he said, I'm, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass and make you all feel so awkward. And he said, but uh, I, my wife and I, we spent eight years in rural Korea together with our family as the only foreigners there. And all we had was, was each other. And she died five years ago. I'd been five years without her, but my wife loved to paint flowers. And when I saw that, I just, I just was overcome with emotion and, and missing her. And uh, he went on to tell about, how, about their work uh, that they did there for the Lord and just gave a beautiful testimony to God of how he worked in and through them and of his love for his wife and of how they were bonded because they were living to build God's kingdom in that place to introduce them to the, the love of Christ. And in doing that, they went through a lot of difficulties, but God used it to bond them, just like Paul was bonded to the Philippians. God used the difficulties they went through to cause that relationship where five years after her death, he was still so missing her and overcome with emotion, thinking back to her love for painting flowers. So that's another beautiful thing. Again, so often it's so hard for us when we face difficult times. We wonder, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this? Well, God's allowing it because he loves us. He wants to bond us to each other. He wants to draw us to himself. Just as he did to the, the Philippians. He drew them to Paul and Paul to them, even in the midst of those difficulties they went through. That brings us to the, the next section here. We, we, I alluded to this earlier about Paul's view of things. And here he, he talks about, okay, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, when he says, what has happened to me, he's saying, um, I want you to know, brothers, that me being thrown in jail here in Rome, really bad news, no, has happened to me to advance the gospel. It's a good thing. And this has happened to me so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Not only that, but most of the local brothers have become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And now they're seeing me preaching, and now they're more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, so rejoice. He says, yeah, I'm in prison, but God has used it to do a great thing. I've had a chance as I'm locked up with these <coughs> excuse me, Roman guards to share my story with them. And so they've heard it, and not only they heard it, but apparently they're telling other people about it. Apparently some of them believe because he says, not only to the guards, but to all the rest. All the rest of the people also know that my imprisonment is for Jesus Christ. They have, they've heard what I've shared with these guards. They've passed it on to others, and they know the incredible story of what God's done in my life. So here's his worldview again. We think, oh, bad things happen. But he says, no, God's in control. These difficulties I'm going through, God is going to use for good so I can rejoice. I can have joy 
even in the midst of being in prison, being chained up, because God is not chained. Then he goes on. Well, some indeed preach Christ from rivalry and envy, but others from goodwill. The latter, okay, those that do it from goodwill, preach the gospel out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Okay, one of the things he's talking about is he's going to have to appear, his case is going to appear before the Roman rulers. And Paul's concerned about that. He wants to represent the gospel well. But these people know that that's what he's there for, that he's on mission for God. And so they see his example of preaching the gospel, and they're doing it more and more so. But he says also, uh, the former, those that preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, not of goodwill, they do it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So apparently what the situation may have been was Paul's in prison and there's some other people that were preaching the gospel that were envious and felt a rivalry with Paul. We're better than Paul. He's, oh, he's so big and strong in his letters, but we've heard him preach in person. He's kind of a weak guy. He's not that impressive. His words are just words, but they're not like us. Now, we can really preach. We can influence people. Well, they wanted to bring trouble to Paul. Apparently, they, it's doubtful that they were true Christians even. They were doing this perhaps for money or whatever, for status. And so by them, maybe they were there in Rome preaching or somewhere else where word would get back to Rome about the gospel, calling people to give your allegiance to Jesus Christ and trust him and hoping that, oh, maybe, maybe that was the message that would get the Romans to be angry at Paul, that he's leading this movement of rebellion against Rome or whatever it was. They were doing something to, to try to bring Paul down and cause him affliction. But Paul says, what then? Actually, the, uh, I like how the NIV says it here, if I can bring it up here. Uh, it says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So again, Paul takes things that look bad that are happening to him. People are trying to bring him in trouble, but he says he he looks for the good, finds the good, and rejoices in it. Well, the gospel's being preached. Even though these guys are bringing, trying to bring trouble to me, people are hearing the good news. And so he praises God. He sees God at work, even in situations where others would only see the bad. Paul knows that God is able to use difficult things in our life for good. And so he has joy in that. So we must develop a deep, solid conviction that our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, but is found in Christ, in a belief that God is sovereign. He's in control of our lives, and everything he does for us is for our good, even when he allows bad, difficult challenges. It's for our good. If you'd close your eyes again. When you ask yourself, why am I not more joyful? What's preventing me from having more joy? As you ask that question, do you think of your circumstances? Oh, after this project is done, then I'll really start having some fun. Then I'll have more joy, and that burden's off my, off my desk. Oh, if I can just get this 
situation with so-and-so resolved, then I'll be able to have some joy. Oh, if we could just work out this issue with our children, if I could just get them to be more obedient, then we could have some joy in our house. That's often how my joy is. You'll open your eyes. Yeah, I, I link my joy so often to thinking, oh, I'll really have joy once this is done, or once I get past that. But the Apostle Paul says this, no, your circumstances are not linked to your joy. They shouldn't be. Your joy shouldn't be dependent on your circumstances. And Paul says, look at my life. <laughs> I was in prison. I'd been stripped naked and beaten, and God gave me so much joy. He worked for it, for his kingdom, for good, bonded me with these people. My life is so, so rich with these relationships because God allowed us to go through difficulties. And he's sovereign, he's in control, and he's out for my good. So don't, don't think your circumstances are what bring you joy. It's found in Christ and in having God's worldview, God's way of seeing things through his truths, through the truths of the scripture. Romans 8, 28, we've heard this many times, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Years ago, I read a book by a, a guy in the um, late 1800s who traveled around America mobilizing students for mission. His name was Robert Wilder, a really amazing guy. But he had this version of Romans 8, 28. He said this. He had this on his wall. God allows nothing in our lives to happen except those things that we too would choose if we could but see things from God's perspective. So he said, not only does God work things for good, but we would actually choose the things happening in our life, even the bad things, if only we saw things from God's perspective. Maybe there's something in your life that's so difficult. Oh, I would never wish that on anybody. But he said, there'll come a day when You'll see, maybe it was from God's perspective, God saw, if I don't allow this difficulty, they would wander from the faith because their life is going pretty smoothly and they've become self-reliant and they would drift away from me and have a life of, of insignificance. But he allows it instead to draw them back to them because he, know, he knew what it would take. I don't know. I don't see things from God's perspective. But he works all things for our good, and we can have great joy in that, even in the midst of difficulty. Then, um, in this next passage, we, Paul goes on. He talks about, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. So this, he's talking about, I'm, this will turn out for my deliverance. And some people are wondering, oh, so Paul's saying he's going to be delivered and released from jail? Uh, it's, it's a little bit unclear here, but I think it's best to see that, I think what he wants to be delivered from is in verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. I think he knows he's facing this trial and he realizes I may be executed or I may be set free. But I want, I've, I'm this person they think in charge of this movement and I'm going to be asked about Christianity and Jesus Christ 
And I want to make sure that I am not ashamed of the way I represent Christ. Um, I believe there's a concern for both. I think that's the heart of what he wants to be delivered from. And he goes on to talk about it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay? To die is better than to live, he says, because then I will be face to face with Jesus. What about you? Are you able to say that in your life? Do you long for heaven? says we're supposed to long, look forward to heaven. Paul did. He couldn't wait. He said, oh, it's better to go to heaven. I will be with Jesus face to face. But he goes on, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I stay in this body, that's good labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. If I had the choice, which would I choose? I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, to see him face to face, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, to remain in this body, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. He says, I'm torn between the two, but I believe if I stay and I don't die, I'm able to help you. Here, Paul, the servant of Christ, always thinking about how can I serve Christ in helping shepherd his people. So he says, no, I, I believe because of that, God's going to have me stay here so that I can, I can help you. But boy, it sure would be better to go. I pray that that will be all of our attitude, that we'll... He's so in love with Jesus that we just can't wait. I mean, not that we want to die, but we want to be with Jesus. We want to be with Jesus because we have experienced how good he is. And like Paul here, the truths we see, we must make our goal to serve Christ's interest, and we must see Going to God as better than being on earth. That is the truth. Then he concludes his, this whole chapter by, by challenging. He said, only let the manner, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, meaning I'm executed, regardless of what happens to me, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm. And now he goes on and he tells us what it means to be, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We want our lives to be worthy of Christ. Let's listen to his words. What does that mean? He says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. So stand firm, be of one spirit, strive side by side for the gospel to build God's kingdom, to know God, to make him known, to help people become more and more like Christ. In your home group, in your men's group, among the people that you're around, that you would share Christ, those that believe that you would be an encouragement to them, let them be an encouragement to you, standing firm, contending, striving for the gospel. And he says, and not being frightened by your opponents. Again, he says, fear is not appropriate. If your worldview is that God is in control and he's able to use and he allows difficult challenges in our lives for our good, then we don't need to fear anything. He goes on to say, not only that, but when you're not afraid in the midst of your opponents, he says that's a sign to them of their destruction 
and assigned to you of your salvation. That's from fine. That's from God. So it's a sign that you're really God's people, that you're not afraid of that. You're looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face, and you're not afraid because you know God is sovereign in control and will use whatever happens for his good. And that's a sign to your opponents that of their destruction. They will see that and know that the Spirit of Christ is in you and that they don't have it. And then he says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he's saying, you're engaged in conflict just like I had it. But realize that God has granted to you to not only believe in him, but to suffer. God has granted for you to suffer. What's interesting here, this word granted is the Greek word akariste, translated, it's, it's derived from a word which means grace or favor. So in other words, he, Paul says, it is for your favor that God allows you not only to believe in him, but to suffer. It's God's undeserved favor on you that he allows you to suffer. Are you ready to believe that as truth? It's the truth. Whether we believe it or not, it's the truth. It's God's grace, his undeserved favor when he allows us to suffer. And Paul's life shows it. All those good things that came out of his suffering because he knew God is sovereign. So a life worthy of God is where in Christ we're unified with others, striving together without fear to build his kingdom. And also this, that it's part of God's good plan for us to suffer and face opposition. It's his grace on us. So in this chapter, to wrap up, here are some of the key points that Paul brings out. Our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. Paul's wasn't, and mine doesn't need to be. Your joy doesn't need to be dependent on your circumstances. It's found in Christ. And joy is found in partnering with people in Christ's power to bring glory to God and build his kingdom. It's true in Paul's life. It's true in my life. It will be true in your life as well. And our actions spring from what we think. We must train ourselves to think biblically and believe that God works all things for our good, even the bad things, the difficult things, the challenges in our life. We need to see that death and going to be with God is gain. Not only gain, but Paul said it's much better. It's much better. And then we talked about what a worthy a life worthy to God. So Paul has an amazing, he gives us a gift. Not only did he give us great teaching, but he gave us a life where he lived out these truths that he tells us. Let's pray. Lord, we just need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be able to do what James says to give thanks when we face trials, to rejoice when trials come in our life. Lord, and now Paul tells us we're to have joy in all these circumstances. But we ask your Holy Spirit would just be working in our lives to do that. Our flesh certainly doesn't do that. But thank you that as we are abiding in you, that you do that. Lord, this week I pray, pray even today. I know there's some here that are going through great difficulties. And they're just wondering how you can be in it. 
they're not feeling your joy. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would reach into their heart and help them, their mind and their hearts to understand that you are at work in their life and that your undeserved favor is upon them. Though all appearances look like it's not, the fact is your undeserved favor is at work in their lives, is at work in all of our lives, for we all have trials and challenges. Lord, we thank you. You love us so much that you allow difficulties in our life, and you've provided a way that we can have joy in the midst of them through you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.